0: You are listening to the politicalbetting.com polling matters podcast my name is kieran pedley well as part of our mini series on the u.s midterms we have another discussion uh, for you today another bonus podcast with um, patrick ruffini who is a pollster with echelon insights uh, a gop pollster and um, very pleased to be joined by him this week we had a wide-ranging discussion on some of the topics you've already heard us talk about this week such as you know who's going to win on the house and senate and which races we should look out for and what are the dynamics that are underplaying this election but we also discussed um, in depth Texas which is an interesting race that's captured the imagination of a lot of people and what's behind that and how importantly uh, we should be uh, treating it and then of course we looked as ever ahead to 2020 because that's going to be increasingly on people's minds and Trump's re-election prospects and also who might face him so a great talking to Patrick this week and you're about to hear that conversation. So I'm here with Patrick Ruffini from Echelon Insights. Patrick, welcome to Polling Matters. Thank you for having me. Um, after some minor technical hiccups, it should be said, but uh, no, thanks, thanks for your patience, Patrick. Um, we're speaking to a, a bunch of different people from all sorts of the political divide and some numbers people, some non-numbers people this week uh, on the midterms. And I guess the first question I'm asking everybody is what, what their current take on the situation is. I mean, what's your read on the polls and what we might see next week?
1: Yes, yeah, so uh right now, um it seems like um in the house, in the in the house uh, elections um, that the, the sort of an expected gain for the Democrats would be something in the range of 30 to 35 seats, which would take them just over the majority um, you know, by about 10 seats. Now, obviously there's quite a range uh, on on what the, that that number could be. Uh, they very easily could fall short and they very easily could um, you know exceed uh that number of gains um, there's quite a bit of uncertainty obviously in in the polls and in the models and, and you know that if things just move as they have in the last few elections by two or three points in one direction or the other right um, mm-hmm. if we have a polling error of that magnitude, that could have a wide uh range of implications on the, the seat count uh in the house um, because um, there are many more competitive races that are being decided by one or two points this year than we have seen in previous election cycles. In the Senate, it looks quite it seems to be quite different uh, in terms of uh, Republicans are, um, you know, favored to pick up one or two seats, um, primarily because, um, you know, even though, uh, you know, this is this is can be characterized as a uh, so-called uh, democratic wave environment um, where they are favored uh, generally to do better than they have done in previous uh, midterm elections and better than they have done in 2016 in the Senate uh, the the states with uh, Senate elections this year have quite a number of seats that are in very Republican areas and with def- with weak Democratic incumbents so uh, Republicans at this point are favored to hold the Senate Um, But that is not that is not a lock. But they are very they're fairly strongly favored to hold the Senate with uh, perhaps a one or two seat gain in, you know, a state like North Dakota, which voted uh, for Donald Trump overwhelmingly. Um, And, you know, a number of other seats that fall into that category.
0: So let's unpick some of this. I mean, on the House. So, I mean, just a reminder for listeners, the House is probably the closest thing we have to the, the U.S. has to the House of Commons, where it's Uh, roughly equally sized districts, first-past-the-post, and all the rest of it. Um, Obviously, it's a nationwide election, the House. Where are the key battlegrounds? Because we know that America is very divided demographically. So presumably, these battlegrounds are in specific places, right?
1: That's right. I mean, so uh, you have a set of battlegrounds that are about, uh, you know, 20, uh, 23 seats that uh, were won uh, by Hillary Clinton in 2016, Um, but that are represented by a Republican member of Congress. Democrats are making a very strong push in these seats. They believe that these will be the, uh, you know, accurately, I believe that these are some of the seats that will be the first to go. Um, We saw a realignment of, uh, you know, partisan uh, voting patterns in 2016 along the lines of educational attainment, uh, particularly among uh, white voters. So um, with, um, you know, white voters uh, with a college degree, Um, voting much more for Hillary Clinton uh, than they had, uh, let's say, for Barack Obama in in 2012. Mm -hmm. And so Democrats are making a very strong push in those districts. But it should be noted that those are not the only types of districts that are, um, you know, vulnerable to a switch. You have quite a few districts that fit this sort of a fairly educated uh, suburban profile, but that Donald Trump won. I mean, people don't really recognize the fact that, yes, he did actually do well in quite a few suburbs. There are still quite a few Republican leaning suburbs, but you have a, a, a large number of seats that he only won by five or ten points. Um, and uh, with the Democratic surge in enthusiasm that we've seen in special elections, which would be your by-elections, mm-hmm. um, that um, with this surge in turnout, there is a sense that those seats are closer to even in terms of their political Complexion in terms of the nature of the electorate because Democratic voters are turning out at much higher rates, particularly in suburbs. Um, so you have quite a few seats that uh, Trump may have won by three, four, or five points that are also on the target list. Finally, you have a handful of seats that Trump actually won fairly comfortably, um, but were these so-called Obama-Trump seats where um, Barack Obama actually did quite well, Hillary Clinton did not do as well. And these are seats with a large number of white voters without a, a college degree. Um, who um, you know surged to Donald Trump were only Trump Republicans, but were not Republicans in general. And there's a sense that the Republican problem in these districts, and there are a, a, a handful of, of seats like this, it maybe comes out. It may it may be turnout where can they motivate these uh obama trump voters to come to the polls to vote for republicans historically those are voters who um because they don't have a college degree they are generally less likely to turn out in a midterm election so will they have actually a favorable enough turnout to uh actually hold on in some seats where um you know west virginia's third district is a good example of this Uh, it was a seat that donald trump captured by 50 points. Um, And in that seat, you have a Democrat running who is actually maybe slightly behind, but is very competitive, who is a military veteran who actually voted for Donald Trump, is a popular elected official in the district. And so um, in in a seat like that, you actually see a a surprisingly competitive uh, race. Um so uh, there are a number of different seats It's very interesting it's a much more interesting midterm election cycle than we've seen in previous years where the where the battlegrounds have been much more restricted um, to a, a very small handful of seats. Um, you know, we have something like around a hundred seats that are considered competitive that is about double. Uh, the average um, that we see uh, every two years.
0: Well, I, I was saying um, earlier this week to Ariel Edwards-Levy from the Huffington Post who was joining us that um, a lot of the realignment that's going on in the U.S. around education and other things um, does seem to mirror, I mean it manifests itself in a different way in the U.S., but it does seem to mirror a lot of the trends uh, we're seeing in the U.K. as well. So it's fascinating to to read across even though the two countries are of course... Um, very different. But if we think about the, um, I mean, why, why are we where we are? I mean, with the Democrats um, poised to take the House, it seems at least. Um, the generic ballot, I think I'm right in saying, seems to be hovering around eight or nine points for the Democrats. You might have different numbers. Um, I mean, what, what's explaining their lead? Is it uh, particular demographics is it, or is it just purely an enthusiasm gap between de- Democrats and Republicans?
1: Uh, that, that'll be an interesting question that I think um, we'll have to wait till next Tuesday to fully <laughs> answer. But it, to, what, to what extent? Um, yeah, cause it does seem like um, you know uh, the narrative has been here that everything is growing more partisan, that people are more divided into partisan camps than ever before, that people are more uh, you know willing to uh, vote straight tickets. Um, so famously, in 2016, uh, there was not a single state that went, uh, that voted one way for president and another way in the Senate. Um, And so, uh, you know, in general, elections in the United States have seemed to have become more predictable and more aligned with, you know, whatever the political alignment of the moment, and that is obviously subject to change. Um, You know, we're seeing quite an interesting changing battleground in the House, um, where the House of Representatives may be. Um, more aligned along, let's say, Trumpy and non-Trumpy lines than it has been before. Um, You know, just given the fact that uh, we have a lot of seats that, um, uh, you know, are educated suburban seats, or at least a a decent handful of seats that are educated suburban seats that have long been represented by Republicans. So think about orange county in california uh the upscale suburbs of los angeles Um, that has been a strongly republican area that voted for barry goldwater in 1964 (laughs) when he was losing the national vote by 23 points Um, it has long been seen as a conservative bastion but you first had an influx of First of all, a a lot more Latino voters uh, coming into the mix, but also white voters in that area, uh, just generally very educated and more socially moderate. Um, And so they have been trending away from the Republican Party for a while. And last last year, for the first time in, you know, I think in almost recorded history, let's say uh, Hillary Clinton not only won Orange County, but won it by nine points. Uh, we have four competitive congressional seat elections in that area specifically in just in that county where all of the, all of the Republicans who represent, it's a, a fairly large uh, county um, uh, where all of the Republicans are, are vulnerable uh, in uh, that, uh, who represent that area. And so we're seeing a realignment, but you're also seeing a small handful of seats um, and there, there are not many where Republicans do have a pickup opportunity. But in Minnesota, for example, we have a couple of seats uh, that voted very strongly for Trump that have been represented by Democrats. So there's, there's in one sense uh, it, where Republicans do have a chance of, of a pickup. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's probably just that one or two one or two seats. So in general, things are becoming more aligned with um, sort of the the post-Trump realignment. But at the same time, you know, let's Forget Trump has a. Uh, in historically, in a midterm election cycle, um, the out party is more motivated to come out and vote. Um, so there's going to be a turnout gap. I think um, that's going to manifest in some form, and there's a question of how big that's going to be. Um, and you also have a sense that you know Trump is not. Uh, while his numbers have been going up, Trump's numbers aren't. He is not that popular. Well, at, I was, go- at I was going to. Al-
0: I was going to ask about right. that because uh, clearly right. midterms. Well, I say clearly, I mean, you, you assume midterms are going to be some form of referendum on the president to at least some right. degree. I mean, his uh, approval ratings, depending on who you look at, um, so if it's not Rasmussen, have been in the toilet, you know, f- for a while. But then there seem to be now. I was looking recently uh, in the sort of early 40s, early to mid 40s. That's right. It should <clears throat> be
1: noted that that's higher than it's been, right? I mean, it's, it, it's not the lowest of his presidency, but they have been trading in a very narrow range, Uh, That's that is that's that's certainly true. And so um, in general, uh, even as we've had a more a a more predictable alignment uh, where you don't see Republicans winning in Democratic seats um, as much because, uh, you know, we have a presidential system. So I think people, generally speaking, were have traditionally worked out their partisan tensions at the presidential level, and they've been more willing to consider. Uh, uh, uh elected officials of different parties down ballot I, I think that's different than your house of commons where everything mm-hmm. is sort of comes down to the vote uh, uh you know so you're sort of voting for the party not the candidate um, you know we are becoming more like the uk in that sense uh, that we have seats that are just generally predicted by whatever the national partisan environment is but we still have swing voters and guess what? Those swing voters are, not, uh, are, are a little bit lukewarm on Trump at the moment. Um, you have uh, an environment that in some ways is the uh, reverse of 2010 where uh, Barack Obama had an approval rating in the mid 40s um, that was very closely divided along partisan lines and Republicans were extremely energized to come out and vote and, you know, eventually took over, uh, you know, uh, generated a wave of over 60 seats. Um, now, um, uh, we're not, I, I don't think we are, uh, that kind of seat gain is in the mix um, uh, for a few reasons. Uh, one is that um, you had at that moment, you had a lot of Democrats representing extremely Republican and conservative rural areas. Um, that is no longer the case, the sort of uh, cross pollination of um, of members of Congress and uh, different types of conservative electorates and Democratic or, or liberal electorates uh, doesn't it has has, you know, everything has become much more aligned um, since then. Um, But you also have a fact of uh, some people would say gerrymandering, some people would say uh, concentration. So gerrymandering is where we you know, we each state draws its own district lines. And, you know, some uh, you know, there's a sense that that those lines have been drawn to favor Republicans because they've had this control of most states um, in the last uh, election cycle where we did. Uh, read you the district line, but we also have a, a, a an urban-rural concentration. Uh, the Democrats have a problem of that their voters are more concentrated in urban districts, um, where they win overwhelmingly, and so uh, the distribution of seats favors the Republicans. So you could see Democrats win the popular vote, um, you know, by as met by eight points, and still only have the extremely narrow House majority.
0: Mm. Let's talk about the Senate a bit. I mean, you mentioned, um, I think, quite quite rightly, that um, the Senate map is pretty favorable for Republicans to be able to hold the Senate. Um, one of the races that um, I think fascinates people over here is in Texas. I'm sure it's not the first time you've been asked about it uh, with uh-huh. Ted, Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. Yeah. I mean, it, to my eye, it seems like I mean maybe people are getting a bit overexcited. But I mean, even if even if uh, Ted Cruz does hang on by a few points, it still is a a remarkably close uh, race for well, for Texas at least by uh, modern historic standards um what's what's going on there because i mean i'm, I'm curious about this uh, realignment you talked about earlier because you know i'm someone that likes to i mean my wife's american we spend some time there i i bore people about going to these different presidential libraries and and you look at the uh, presidential maps of years gone by and they're very different to what we see now right so realignments do happen so so what's happening in texas and it, is this a sign that maybe that could be a state that's in play maybe not next election cycle in a presidential race but election cycles from you know two or three terms down the line? Uh, yeah, I think
1: many people have been speculating about this for, for a while, right? And so uh, one thing that happened in Texas um, in 2016 was uh, the, the state of Texas uh, was a, a, an eight-point margin for Donald Trump, which was actually uh, a very steep decline from, I believe it was the 16-point margin that Mitt Romney achieved in, um, in uh, 20, uh, 2012 um and so uh what we're seeing now is that ted cruz um you know is weaning by i would say about that amount maybe a little bit less um you know you sort of account for the democratic turnout uh, there's all indications from early voting uh, which we have here you know people can go to the uh can cast a vote early here and uh, the turnout has been off the charts, particularly in Texas. Um, so there's a sense that uh, he may win, but he may win by a margin that is more in line with the Donald Trump margin than it is um, that, that uh, you know, sort of what the, the Donald Trump margins that we expect that we've seen are the new default um, throughout the country. And so, um, uh, you know, he's winning, but by five or six points um, in the, most of the polling averages. What's been interesting is that, you know, there's been quite a, uh, this has, been, this has been quite an interesting um, development, I think, in terms of the polling community, because there's a sense that, like, look, Texas is obviously a big state. It's very interesting. We have two uh, very uh, interesting candidates. Beto O'Rourke is a, a, you know, a very talented um, you know, politician and uh, has, has been able to raise an, a, an ungodly amount of money um, for this race. Um, but there's a sense of, like, wait a second, this is not actually the most competitive race. This is not the... Uh, either the most competitive or the tipping point state. So I was looking yesterday at the um, expenditures in in Texas, particularly by these outside groups, these groups that, um, you know, uh, we have a, a series of super PACs and national campaign committees whose job it is to place bets across the map and to spend money across the map. And so there has been a total... Of 60 million dollars um, spent by outside groups in the state of Indiana um, which is uh, another very competitive uh, race um, where a, a Republican uh, that obviously is home state of uh, Vice President Mike Pence uh, Donald Trump won by something like 19 points and so we're trying the Republicans are trying to knock off a Democrat uh, Democratic incumbent there and that's within one or two points Um, There's been $60 million spent by outside groups in Indiana. There has only been $10 million spent in Texas. So that tells you, you know, the smart money. uh, What do uh, the groups uh, in terms of who are actually doing the fighting for Senate control? uh, What do they think is the most important seat yet on Twitter? Everybody says Texas is the most <laughs> important seat, and there's a joke like, "Oh my God, there's another another poll of Texas." Well, of course, there's another poll of Texas, is because that gets more page views, that gets more clicks. But is that the most important and closest race at the moment?
0: So, what do you um, see as I think um, it's um, event- Sorry, I was going to say, if, if Texas isn't the most important, it, from the Republican side, what what are the one, what are the state um, the Senate seats that they might be worried about? That could cost them the Senate. Even if we say we think the Senate probably stays red, are there seats that yeah, they feel so, are concerned? They're concerned about.
1: So they would need to win. I mean, so there's a number of seats where there's a, there's two uh, very particularly competitive open seats in Nevada and in uh, Arizona that are very close. Um, Nevada might be tilting a little bit more Republican. There's a, 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 a you know uh, Dean Heller is the incumbent there. He was initially a Republican who was sort of more skeptical of Donald Trump. and then after the election sort of um, became reconciled uh, with Donald Trump and has gotten support from Donald Trump. Um, but he is uh, you know, sort of a sense that he has done what he has needed to do to get reelected, but that is nonetheless is a very competitive state at the presidential level. And so that is competitive. Um, you know um, There's Arizona, you have uh, two female candidates uh, running. Uh, Kristen Cinema on the Democratic side and Martha mcsally uh, on the Republican side um, that is also a very close race um, so in terms of losses um, you know there's not a, the, the thing is that there are potential states that Republicans um, can you know potentially lose um, but um, because they're they are favored to win at least you know at least one seat um, that is very, that they are very strongly favored to pick, take from the Democrats and then there's a menu of options, that there aren't a lot, there are more must-wins for the Democrats than there are for the Republicans. So the, Repu- the Democrats really do need to go deep into Republican territory and places where they are competitive. They would need to pick up a place like Texas, uh, which, you know, there's no poll that really right now says that they can, but it's it's certainly not <laughs> Within uh, the realm of possibility, you know, it's certainly within the realm of possibility that there Mm. could be a surprise Um, or they would need to win Tennessee where there's an open seat race. A popular former governor is running for the Democrats, uh, Phil Bredesen. And and so there's a sense that there's more. The Democrats really do need to run the table. Um, And so, you know, look, if we have a if we have a wave uh, in the House um, that is over 40 seats and we have this sort of um, everything goes two to three points for the Democrats and they get some lucky breaks and they're able to save incumbents in Indiana, Missouri, and limit their losses to the Republicans and then pick up two seats, which is what they need uh, on net, then yes, that they could win the, the Senate. But, you know, I think 538 uh, had it at w- a one in seven chance that they could actually do that, which is, is not a possibility. We should be discounting after 2016,
0: sure. agree 2016. Absolutely. And then and this side of the Atlantic, you know, we've been guilty of uh, f- f- falling into the conventional wisdom on issues over right. here. And when I hear people say, Oh, it's nailed on the house is going blue, the-, the Senate's staying red. Well, maybe both go one way, maybe both go the other. Who knows the conventional wisdom has been wrong before. Um, final couple of minutes on um, what happens in the future, I guess. I mean, and this is I appreciate it's going to be somewhat subjective and speculative but I mean what what sort of issues do you think are going to dominate the political agenda in the next couple of years as we go into 2020 and if and if you're um if you're if you're president Trump I mean how optimistic I mean I'm sure he's always optimistic but how optimistic are you about your re-election prospects based on the numbers now
1: I think that uh, it, 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 assuming let's let, it, just uh, uh, positing the hypothesis that Democrats do win the House, I mean, legislatively, it's, it's, it's very unlikely that anything of, of consequence really happens as a result, uh, given the, the polarization. Now, there's a question, I think, of how does Trump react to that? Does he uh, go into his deal-making mode? Uh, you know, he says he's a deal maker. Does he try to make deals with Democrats? Or does he, um, you know, become you know, double down on becoming the sort of partisan tribal warlord leader trying to protect you from the Democrats who now have some control? I have long thought that, you know, Democrats actually having a seat at the table, uh, winning in the House or the Senate or both, um, could benefit Donald Trump. Uh, and that, that's historically what what's generally happened in, in you know, where you've had, Barack Obama lost the House in 2010. Bill Clinton lost the House uh, in the Senate in 1994, and both went on to be Um, Mm re-elected. You know, sort of the strategy... um, Gives him something to run against, To not it? The the triangulation strategy that came into being in the Bill Clinton era of trying to pivot against both the Democrats and the Republicans and trying to be the president that stays above the partisan prey... Does Donald Trump have that capacity? Is the question. Mm. But I do think that having somebody to blame, I think, is very is a very big thing for him. Yeah, and that's so, that, that I, scapegoat's I, really
0: important, isn't it? And I mean we have often heard of he you know, he's going to pivot to the center and be the deal maker. It never hasn't quite happened yet, I suppose. But um No, knows? I mean no. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I wouldn't bet money on that.
0: Wouldn't bet money on it. Um I mean how do you see I mean I know I know we it's far too early to know what will take place in twenty twenty, but how how do you see the uh how do you see that shaking up in terms of Trump's prospects, but also who, who, who the leading candidates are on the Democrat side? Because one of the things we love to do here, and I'm sure they do in Washington too, is sort of speculate on who, who the front runners are to face him and that sort of thing. I mean, wh- who do you think the leading players are at the moment and uh, how, how, what, what are his prospects for re-election?
1: Uh, I, I think that his prospects for reelection are better than is commonly acknowledged. He has a very strong base, and while his approval rating is, uh, and yeah, I wouldn't say like it is a, a, a strong base in terms of a base that will stay loyal to him, um, that um, of, of whom there are some members who disapprove of what his personal style, his tweeting, but nonetheless agree with his policies and don't want the Democrats to uh, be in power. Um, And so I I think it will once again be a very close election. Um, But um, as a result, I don't think he has lost very many um, voters since his 2016 victory. Uh, In in actuality, when we actually get to a presidential election, there's a question of how many of those voters will actually vote in this midterm election. Mm. Um, So I think it'll be a very close race on the Democratic side. Uh, Good luck trying to predict that um, (laughs) because we have quite a few People running. I mean, you may have uh, we may have 20, 30 people running on the Democratic side based on if everybody who has said they are likely to run goes through with it. Um, there's going to be a very historically large Democratic field. And, uh, you know, it's very difficult to see, you know, uh, from the experience of having a 17 candidate Republican field. Um, anything can happen and anything did happen in 20, uh, 2016. Um, you know, we generally, there's a sense like vice, that former vice president, Joe Biden has, you know, as the front runner, um, but, you know, because of his uh, the loyalty from the Obama era. And, you know, he has about a third of the vote in uh, any, any time that anyone has tried to wade into pr- uh, primary polling. Um, but there's a sense like that is, a fairly tenuous hold uh, that, you know, we saw the experience uh, of Hillary Clinton and, uh, and how she lost, um, she was the prohibitive front runner um, in 2008 and lost to an upstart named Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, there's a sense like he is a a front runner, but a weak front runner. And then you have, um, you know, the potential for um, Elizabeth Warren to run, you have the potential for Kamala Harris to run, um, I think she is an interesting candidate to watch um, simply because the African-American vote in the Democratic primary is extremely important and large. That is something that has been loyal to Barack Obama, to Hillary Clinton, and currently it seems to perhaps it could be to Joe Biden. But that if, if that swings behind an African-American candidate, um, then she could uh, unite uh, sort of the progressives and the african-american vote and that would be a very strong position from which to run um, So it'll be very interesting for sure. <laughs> I, I think that I think we have to think about the primary field um, uh, from the standpoint of not, not necessarily in individual named candidates, but ideological n- lanes mm-hmm. um, where you're going to have ideological or demographic lanes, you're going to have a candidate who is primarily a candidate of the left. You're going to have a candidate who is primarily the candidate of African Americans, or, you know, that is going to be a key voting block that's going to swing between these two camps. And you're going to have more of the pragmatist, um, you know, camp that maybe Joe Biden represents. Um, So I think like who can, uh, uh, you know, who can establish dominance within those lanes and start to pick off um, voters from different camps i think is going to be the interesting question because it's very hard to sort out when you're you're trying to sort out 30 names uh on a list
0: and discussions around that uh debate are going to take place in earnest i'm sure after the midterms and patrick ruffini very thank you very much for your time thank you that was patrick ruffini there from echelon insights big thanks to patrick for uh for, for joining us this week uh, we faced some technical issues at the beginning trying to line this up so I do appreciate Patrick's patience but it was a great conversation um, yeah, lots of interesting topics covered there um, around Texas and some other states to watch in the senate map uh, and just the volatility really of of american politics as it sort of enters a period of uh, of realignment um, his take on 2020 was uh, was interesting as well, sort of aligns quite closely with mine. I mean, Trump does seem to be in a better position than maybe people give him credit for in terms of his re-election prospects. I still do wonder. I've got this um, Anthony Scaramucci's uh, words from a couple of days ago ringing in my head about how there might be a recession between now and um, now and when Trump faces re-election. Um, if there is, well, that, that, that does change things dramatically, doesn't it? But the Democrat race for the nomination is going to be a long drawn out one, it does seem. And uh, I'm I'm not 100% convinced that some of the older candidates like Biden, like Sanders, will necessarily run. And Lord, it's unpredictable as it is. um, But if some of those more senior candidates don't run, it becomes even more, uh, even more so. Um, But something to watch out for uh, in the the coming months and years. Um, but once again, thanks to Patrick Ruffini for joining me and I hope you enjoy this sort of mini series on the U S midterms. For those of you that are interested, if you like what you hear, do as ever share us on social media and all the rest of it, it does help the podcast uh, gain new listeners and we very much appreciate it. But for now, let's look forward to the results next week. And thanks for listening.